Uh, so next week we will start our uh, Genesis sermon series, and we'll be there for the next 40 years. <laughs> no, really. Um, we're going to get started in Genesis next week. Last Sunday and today are meant to uh, be a helpful foundation for that um, sermon series. So not, not really an introduction. Next week will be an introduction to Genesis. But I'm, I'm hopeful that what we talked about last Sunday and what I'm going to preach about today will be helpful in laying a foundation. And the reason I'm doing this is, is, is one, because we're going, we're going Old Testament. And um, Christians are kind of weird about the Old Testament. And it kind of scares some of us. So trying to get that out of the way. And that's why we talked last week about uh, the Old Testament. I almost said last year. And that would have been right. Because last week was last year. Uh, we looked at the Old Testament and just went through an overview on the Old Testament. Today we're going to do an overview on the New Testament. Uh, Genesis is, is a big book. Um, it is an Old Testament book. And we're going to cover lots of themes and we're going to look at lots of truth over at least the next year. Uh, but there are some things I think that are helpful for us if we really understand how the Bible all fits together. That we don't see it as disjointed, but see that it really is a, a complete story from Genesis to Revelation. So last week, Old Testament. This morning, New Testament. And then next week, we'll begin our study in Genesis. One well-known reformer said this, The Bible is alive. I said this last week. Say it again today. The Bible is alive. The first part of his quote is just quoting Hebrews. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold on me. Now, some of you say that God speaks to you. And some of you mean really crazy things when you say that. When I say God speaks to me, I mean I read the Bible. When I read the Bible... God is speaking to me. When you read the Bible, God is speaking to you because this is his living word. This is his book that he has authored. And he's written everything that he wants us to know. And by his Holy Spirit, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit brings God's word to you, the right words to you when you need to hear them. And he brings them with power and he brings them with understanding. And so it is God speaking to you. There is a movement over, well, there is a movement of, of not being satisfied with God's written word and looking for further revelation and further vision and further prophecy and wanting to hear from God's word. We need to be very careful that we don't become a people who are no longer content with God's written word. So if you've stumbled in here to Veritas, know that we are completely content with God's written word. It is alive, it speaks to me, it has feet, it runs after me. Some of you know what it's like to be hunted down by God's word. You thought you were hiding, you thought no one knew where you were, you thought no one knew the sin that you were struggling with, you thought that it was just your own little private affair, and then you read God's word one morning, and you realized that God's word has feet that were running after you. He found you out. As well, it has hands, it lays hold on me. Some of you know what that's like. You've had God's word lay hold of you. You've got bruises to show this, right? It has picked you up. It has grabbed you. It has held you back. It has pulled you. It has pushed you. You know that this is true of God's word. So it's a big deal. This is why we go verse by verse here at Veritas. And this is why it's very uncharacteristic for us to do a topical sermon series, let alone try to cover the whole New Testament in one sermon. But that's what we're going for today. So we need prayer. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for gathering us together today. Your people uh, and those who may soon be your people. Thank you for your word. And thank you for giving us the ability to, to read and by your Holy Spirit to understand these words which are spiritually discerned. So give us a portion of your Spirit today. Fill us with your Spirit so that we can discern what your Word is saying. As we look at the whole of the New Testament, Father, 
from Matthew to Revelation. May some of us be reminded, may some of us for the first time, may, may we see your glorious gospel fully expressed in this New Testament that we have before us. Let us see Jesus today. Let us see your people and your church today. And let us see the foundation for the future hope that we still have as your church. Do these things today, Father, we pray for our good and for your glory. And we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, open up to the New Testament. And uh, we will be there today. The New Testament is treated interestingly by many Christians. I'm sure you've noticed this. Maybe some of you, when you first became a Christian, uh, somebody handed you a New Testament. But that's all they handed it to you. And you're like, wait, isn't there more? Uh, Some Christians give out, and I can remember doing this, give out the New Testament and only the New Testament to new believers or almost believers or non-believers. And we do that because we don't want them to know there's an Old Testament. We're afraid they're going to read it if we give them the Old Testament. So we just give them Matthew to Revelation. But then we get even more specific. We're like, well, Revelation is crazy. So then we're just giving them Matthew or Mark or Luke or John. Or pretty soon we're just giving them a postcard that says John 3.16, right? We're like, this is what you need. Just smile and wave. <laughs> we're afraid of how people are going to react. I'll give them the New Testament, right? It's this belief that God is, again, that he's happy in the New Testament, but he's angry in the Old Testament. But I want you to know happy God, so I only want you to read the New Testament. And God forbid you give a a person who's not a believer the Old Testament, and they stumble into the book of Judges and have all these questions for you, right? And so the idea is, I'll give you the New Testament, and then a few years down the road, I'll tell you about the Old Testament, You'll find this out, though, when you come to a church and the pastor is quoting for you. Oh, the Old Testament, I didn't even know. It's amazing. And then, once we have you signed and sealed and you're in the door and you're not going anywhere, then we'll bring out the Old Testament and say, surprise, here's a crazy old book. Hopefully, what we looked at last week was helpful. Okay, the Old Testament is God's Word. You will not understand the New Testament if you do not understand the Old Testament. You will not fully appreciate the person and work of Jesus Christ if you do not know what the Old Testament says. If you do not know what the Old Testament teaches. It is imperative for us to understand what is in the Old Testament. When God's Word says that we meditate on God's Word, we should meditate on God's Word day and night. We should meditate on His law day and night. I do not believe that that is only for Old Testament Christians. That is for us as well today. We should be meditating on God's law. We should be meditating on the Old Testament. We should be meditating on the New Testament. It is all breathed out by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So we love it all. Last week we looked at three things in regards to the Old Testament. I've got to quickly say them again because it sets us up for looking at the New Testament. One is we saw history. Okay, the history in your Old Testament is the history of God. It is the, the history of His people. It is the history of the world. Two themes that we looked at. One, the holiness. Okay, we see the holiness of God very clearly in the Old Testament. God is a holy God. He is totally different. He is totally unlike us. He is totally set apart. He is totally unique. In that, He is perfect. God is perfect. And in that way, there is none like him. When he says through the prophet Isaiah, I am God and there is no other. We set up little gods, not gods. Other religions make up gods, not gods. There is one God and there is no other. We want to know that God. He's a holy God. When we understand how holy he is, it highlights how unholy we are. There's a, there's a contrast When we read about God and how good He is and how gracious He is and how merciful He is and we see what flows from His character, we realize that this is not what flows from our character. This is not how we live. This is not how we make decisions. This is not who we are. 
So we see a holy God. We see the unholiness of ourselves. And consequently, we see wicked, unreconciled man under the righteous judgment of God. Because here we are as unholy people before a holy God. Thereby, we are under his just wrath. We are facing his justice. But the Old Testament is not merely the second thing we looked at is hope. The Old Testament is not merely um, speaking of the holiness of God and the unholiness of man. If that was it, that would be bad news. No good news. Game over. But there's hope in the Old Testament. Hope doesn't just show up in the New Testament. The Old Testament isn't depressing, 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 depressing. Matthew, happy. There is hope that is found in the Old Testament. And the hope that is found in the Old Testament is in the promises of God. So God makes great promises. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to save you. I'm going to make things right. I'm going to make things new. I'm going to redeem. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to restore. And this is all throughout the Old Testament. It starts very small in Genesis chapter 3 where it's just a little bit of light in a dark world that says there, there is a hope coming. And then as you see throughout the Old Testament, that gets brighter and brighter and brighter and brighter until the light of the world himself comes, Jesus Christ. And the hope is, is totally and completely realized in him. So in the Old Testament, there is much hope that is spoken into death and destruction. This is, this is how the prophets in the Old Testament weren't depressed. Well, some of them were depressed. But there was hope and joy. If you read Jeremiah, you will see that Jeremiah was depressed. I mean, Jeremiah would be laying on a couch in a counselor's room at least once a week. Lamentations. He's lamenting. He is discouraged. He is depressed. And yet, he is not broken. Yet, he is not hopeless. He is completely hopeful. The reason he's hopeful, along with the other prophets who know the death and destruction that is around them, is because they know better than anyone the promises of God. They know that God says it will not always be this way. When you're in pain, when you're suffering, hey, Christian, you need to hear God's word say it won't always be this way. There will be an end to this. You need to hear things like that. You need to hear things like, and even this tough stuff is for your good and for God's glory. You need to hear things like that. And the Old Testament prophets preached it from Genesis all the way through Malachi, 450 B.C. The prophets were preaching the promises of God. There is hope. There is hope. Namely, God will send a rescuer. They called him the Messiah. God is going to rescue us. He's going to rescue us through a rescuer. And they learn more and more and more over time about what he's going to look like and who he's going to be and where he's going to come from until finally Jesus shows up in the New Testament and fulfills those promises. So that means that our hope, maybe this doesn't need to be said, But it means that our hope is in Jesus. Some of us have our hope in the wrong place. Some of us have misplaced hope. Some of you have been burned because you've done that before. And you've you've placed your hope in, in people. Your hope should not be in people. Your hope should be in a person. Jesus Christ. Your hope should not be in your boyfriend and your girlfriend and your husband and your wife and your children and your mom and your dad and the sweet, perfect grandmother you have and grandpa, aunts, uncles, your best friend. Your hope should not be in these people. And the reason your hope should not be in these people is because if your hope is in these people, you're actually hopeless. You're hopeless because they're going to let you down. They're going to let you down. I'm going to let you down. You're going to let me down. There is only one who is holy. There is only one who is perfect. There is only one who is without sin. There is only one who truly knows you. And it's God. So our hope must be in God. It can't be in people. It can't be in family. It can't be in a job. It can't be in politics. It can't be in church. It can't be in education. The Old Testament teaches us that our hope should be set upon God and His promises. God would teach his people this by taking away literally everything but God and his promises. 
He would do it with them corporately as a people, and he would do it with them individually, men like Job, where he allowed Satan to take absolutely everything from Job till Job had nothing but him and God. Even his friends were lame. You've read Job. He just had lame friends. Like, this is my support group? This is terrible. They were sinners. God took everything so that he was left only with God so that Job learned that all he needed was God. All we need are God and his promises. There is no hope found in us, in each other. There is no hope to be found in this world. God alone is incapable of not coming through on his promises. Say that again. God is incapable of not keeping his promises. We're not saying that only that God keeps his promises. That's great. It's more emphatic when we say that God is not capable of breaking his promises. It is the very nature and character of God to do what he says he will do. None of us are like that. Again, we are unholy. We keep some of our promises sometimes. That does not sound too great. But it's true for all of us, right? You have promises that you've kept, but you also have promises that you've broken. Your yes isn't always yes. Your no isn't always no. You said you were going to do things and you didn't do them. And you said you weren't going to do things and you went ahead and did them anyway. Some of you have made great promises and you've broken them, which means you've committed grievous sin against people. Some of you have broken promises in your jobs, broken promises in financial contracts, promises in relationships with people. I mean, we make promises and we break them. This is an aspect of who we are as sinful people. God is not capable of breaking a promise. God always keeps his promises. So in the New Testament, think of your New Testament as this. God coming through on all his promises. One author says... Old Testament is promises made. New Testament is promises kept. Not totally true. There are promises that are fulfilled in the Old Testament as well. But most of God's great promises are fully realized in the New Testament. And more promises are made about the future that will be fully realized one day. So that brings us to the New Testament. The New Testament where we find God fulfilling his promises. So like last week, three things we find in the New Testament. These are not the only things we find in the New Testament. So, yes, I am going to leave something out. We're not going to be here for a week. So expect I'll leave something out. But I want to say critically, this is what the New Testament is about. Number one, the New Testament is about, and you all know what I'm going to say, Jesus. That's number one. The New Testament is about Jesus. He doesn't just show up in Matthew. Okay, the Son of God is everywhere in your Bible. The Messiah, the Rescuer, is everywhere in your Bible. But the God-man shows up when he's born in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And his name was Jesus, Yeshua. Jesus, number two... The new covenant people of God. So the New Testament is about Jesus and the New Testament is about the new covenant people of God. That's very special and we're going to look at that. The people of God, but specifically in a a new and amazing way, the people of God, starting with Jesus and his ministry, the new covenant people of God. We'll talk about what that means. And number three, a future hope. So Jesus, the new covenant people of God, and a future hope. Number one, Jesus. The New Testament is about Jesus. The first thing in your New Testament is Jesus. This is why the very first five books of the New Testament... Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts are his historical narrative of the life and the ministry of Jesus. Here's the promise that God kept. Looking back now to Genesis, the story to the Gospels. God created the universe and mankind 
They rebelled and turned their back on God's rightful rule and kingship and served created things rather than creator. This is what Adam did. And every one of us has done the same thing since. We all worship created things rather than creator. So, God called out, we'll read of this in Genesis 12, Abraham and made a covenant with him and worked with him and with his family through his grandson Jacob for two millennia. A very special family that we're going to be introduced to in Genesis. Jacob, whose name was changed by God to Israel. Through Israel, this family grew to become a great nation, a nation that was loved by God and chosen by God, but a rebellious nation. Who, because of their sin, were providentially handed over to destruction, captivity, and exile under invading armies. We see this over and over again and ultimately through Assyria and Babylon in the Old Testament. Eventually, this is 538 years now before Christ, eventually the people returned home from the Babylonian Persian exile to their ruined home in Jerusalem, and they rebuilt the temple and they rebuilt the wall. And so here they are, that's Genesis to Malachi real quick. So here they are, a very small insignificant people in the world. A people who have been ruined, a people who have been ruled over, a people who have been decimated, a people who have been held in captivity, a people who are, at this time, a small and insignificant people in the world. And then here's where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come on. And because from here, among this small, insignificant, desperate people, God keeps His promise by sending the promised rescuer. Of all the people and of all the places... And by the time Jesus shows up, they had just been destroyed again by Rome in 64 BC. I mean, they just cannot get a break. And it is from this small, insignificant, desperate people under Roman rule. Not, not the picture of power in the world. But it is from this small, insignificant people because they were the ones whom God has set his affection on and whom he had loved and who he chose. He obviously didn't choose them because they were great or love them because they were great or accept them because they were great. Is that good for you to hear? Those of you who know you're not great? That God has a track record of loving those who aren't great? And not choosing people because of something good in them, but choosing people because of something good in Him? Wow, that's, that'll preach. That's good news right there. And to these small, insignificant, desperate people, God chooses their, fulfills His promises that He had made to that family so long ago. And then there was a child, as we sung about this morning, a child born in Bethlehem, no ordinary child, were introduced to him in these gospel accounts. The Savior, the Messiah, the Rescuer. And you have his story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are documentaries. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Same documentary. Birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. But they're all contextualized, which means they're all written by different authors and written to different people. So they're written in different ways. Same truth, but written in a language and in a way that the audience will hear, understand, and receive. So that's why you see Matthew, who was written to Jews. Matthew makes a point in his gospel account of showing that Jesus is the great prophet And the fulfillment of all the prophecies. Because he's writing to Jews who knew their Old Testament. So he brings up, do you see? Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. But the others who aren't writing to the Jews don't emphasize that as much. For example, Mark. 
Mark, who, who may have been the gospel according to Peter. Mark may have been writing for Peter, we think. But Mark is writing to a Roman audience and Roman Christians. Mark is also different. It's the shortest of the gospel accounts, and it might be the oldest. It might be the very first one that was written. Then we come to Luke. And Luke has historically been called the gospel to the Gentiles. A Gentile just means a non-Jew. Most of us here today, if not all of us, are Gentiles. And so in Luke, that was a big deal, though, because Israel was thinking, hey, this is our deal. And God said, no, I've come to save people from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. This gospel is not just for you, Israel. This is for all people. And so Luke writes specifically to that audience, hey, this is for you. And he emphasizes in the book of Luke that God came to save people. You read from every tongue, every tribe, and every nation. This is for you. This is for me. Luke also wrote a sequel. His sequel is the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts... He gives the history of Jesus building the early church through his Holy Spirit after his ascension into heaven. And then John. John, which is probably the most complex of all the gospel accounts. It's funny, it's often given out to, to brand new Christians, but it's the, it's the most complicated of all the gospel accounts. John is written to Greeks. And it is probably written in a way that is meant to pervade Greek philosophy at the time. And Gnosticism, which was very, very popular at the time. And so it's written to combat that and to speak into that. So you'll see characteristics in the gospel according to John that are there purposefully to get the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to that special audience. So the news that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that Jesus came and Jesus did what Adam could not do. He passed the test. Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. Adam did not. Eve did not. And no one else has. Scripture tells us in Romans that Adam was our first representative and Jesus was our second representative. That means that Jesus, as the second head of the race of mankind, if you will, he redid it and retook the test and passed the test. Remember, Adam was put in the garden, and he was told, you need to fully obey me, God said. You may not sin. He gave him one, we're going to look at this, he gave him one rule. This is who we are as people. Tell us what the one rule is so that we can break it. We could be given one rule, and we will break that rule. Have you ever felt that well up inside of you? You hear a rule, and some of you, it's bad. You hear the rule, you're like, I want to break it. (laughs) Start planning. How can I break it? You can only drive 35. I'll drive 36. Thank you very much. (laughs) You're a teenager. You need to be home by 11. Okay, sure. 1101. Is that good enough? How about two? See you tomorrow. And we want it. We want it. We want to buck against authority. This is who we are. We are rebellious people. We want to break rules. God gives Adam, he says, one rule. Basically, says, obey me and this is going to go well. Gives him a cultural mandate. Says, here's land, fruit, trees, a wife, you're naked. This is good. Just enjoy your life and obey me and honor me and this will go well. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, though, he falls. All humanity, the entire human race has fallen in him. We're all like our greatest grandfather, Adam. We've sinned against God and we have gone our own way. Well, Jesus came and Jesus came and he lived the life that God demands. In him, there was no sin. He lived perfectly and did not sin, which qualified him to do whatever he wants. Which qualified him as the sinless one to save sinful people. He didn't have to die for his own sin. Therefore, his death could be for the sins of others. So we read that Jesus fulfilled God's promise to Moses of a coming prophet, for example. So in your Old Testament, right, there's different ways that this rescuer, the Messiah, is described. Okay, in the, New, in the Old Testament, they were given prophets, they were given priests, they were given kings. But all those prophets were told, you're not it. There's going to be the perfect prophet who's going to come. The perfect mouthpiece of God. The perfect preacher. And the priests, 
right? They knew that there was a perfect priest who was going to come. They were there and they were mediating between God and his people. But one day, the perfect high priest would come and be the ultimate mediator for God and his people. And even the kings like David who ruled knew that they were not the ultimate king. And one day, the ultimate king would come. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And we learn in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus was that promised rescuer. The promised prophet that Moses was told about in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God, Moses is told, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And Jesus shows up and say, I'm the prophet. A king was also prophesied to David. And Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promise to David of a better king that was coming. God told David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Jesus is this rescuer that was promised. And we learn of Jesus in these documentaries in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then we read of him establishing his people and his church by his spirit and working through them and spreading them through the book of Acts. So Jesus is at the center of the of the New Testament. I mean, Jesus is at the center of this testament of the Bible. But very clearly in the New Testament, Jesus, we must keep him at at the very heart, at the very center of everything we read. But now let's move on to number two. Not only is the New Testament about Jesus, it is also about the new covenant people of God. In fact, it is the new covenant people of God that the New Testament is written to. The New Testament is a book that is written for these people of God. It is written by them. The authors of the New Testament, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and and Paul and Peter and James and John and Jude, they are a part of the New Covenant people of God. So the New Testament is written by them. It's written to other New Covenant people of God. And it's written for them. The purpose, these words are written so that the, the New Covenant people of God would hear what they needed to hear from God. So let's define that word covenant. It's one of the reasons we're doing this foundational work before Genesis. This word covenant is going to come up a lot. And we're going to talk about covenant a lot. And we don't have good understandings in our culture uh, of what covenant is. Or we have immature uh, definitions of, of covenant and And so here's what a covenant is. One definition. Try to get as close as we can. A covenant. And we're talking about the new covenant people of God. So here's what a covenant is. A solemn commitment with guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties sealed with an oath. Serious business. Some would say sealed by a blood oath. Let me read that again. A covenant is a solemn commitment with guaranteeing promises or obligations undertaken by one or both parties sealed with an oath. And so when we say the new covenant people of God, we mean... People who are in covenant with God. And God has always, from Genesis on, been in covenant with His people because 
a relationship in your Bible, a relationship between God and people begins with covenant. So what has to happen is God has to condescend. He has to come down to us and he has to start a relationship with us. Right? We don't start a relationship with God. We don't, we don't have his number. We don't call him. We don't find him. God has to find us and he has to call out to us and he has to reveal himself to us. And so this is what happens from the very beginning. God comes down. And he begins a relationship with us. And the relationship is, is, is founded on a covenant. A solemn commitment. Where there are promises that are made to one another. And there are obligations. So God makes promises to his people. And then he obliges his people. We have obligations to God. You need to do this and you must do this. But these are the promises that I am making to you. And it was typically sealed by an oath, specifically a blood oath. Which is why you'll see when you see God making a covenant with his people. Whether it's Adam, whether it's Noah, Abraham, Moses. There would be a sacrifice, wouldn't there? Blood would be shed as a seal of this covenant to emphasize how serious this relationship is and how serious the commitment that was being made to one another. So in the Old Testament, we have this covenant relationship between God and his people. In the New Testament, we have this covenant relationship between God and his people. Today, we have this relationship between God and his people that is based on a covenant. So God has always been operating like this with his people. But there is some amazing things that happen with that covenant and that relationship with his people after Jesus, which is why we say the new covenant people of God versus the old covenant people of God. For example, just two things. One is when you read about this relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament, right? It's pretty messed up. It's a dysfunctional relationship. Not because of God, but because of his people. I mean, you, you read about what God's people do. I mean, he's just blessed them and, and given, them, given them everything that they need. Many times given them everything that they want. Blessing and blessing and blessing and blessing. And then God's people just turn on him. And go the other way. And go in the other direction. And are adulterous. Cheat on God. Is what he's saying. And are idolaters. And worship things other than God. Worship created things other than creator. And when we read the Old Testament. It's, it's really, really bad. I mean God is in covenant with Israel. In our Old Testament. God is in covenant with Israel. The whole nation and within that nation there is a remnant okay there are those within that nation who are faithful and love god but there are also those who are unfaithful and don't love god and god's in covenant with all of them so we read about this dysfunctional relationship where god is in covenant with israel the faithful and the unfaithful and so you read you've read the stories and so this relationship between god and his people is continually devastated by unfaithfulness among Israel and unbelief among Israel and, and just gross defiance by those who are called God's people. You read a book like the book of Judges, right? And it's just over and over and over again. We're going to read in the book of Genesis. You're going to read about these heroes and those who were loved and blessed by God and some of the things they did. You know, gross defiance of God. These people who were a part of this nation that was selected as the nation to be the testimony of God's greatness to the world. And there were some who were faithful and believed. And while they sinned, they loved God and honored him. But there's all these others who God is in a covenant with. Israel, who were unfaithful, who didn't believe, who sacrificed their children, who worshipped other gods. Who had religious prostitutes. Who defied God's word and defied God's law. And yet God was in covenant. And still blessing them and taking care of them. Loving them. It's wild. 
But something different happens in the new covenant people of God. This is where God's covenant, right, is promised that God's promises, I will be gracious and I will be merciful and I will, I will give you what you need. That's why in the new covenant through Jesus, and there's promises of this while the old covenant was still in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31, we'll read it. It says there's a new covenant that's coming. And the new covenant is going to be different in the sense that among my people are not going to be faithful and unfaithful, believing and unbelieving. They will all believe. They will all be faithful. They will all honor me. So the new covenant people will be a more pure portrait of who I am. That's the church. And prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel were were talking about that covenant coming one day. Listen, in Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. The house of Israel. We're told in the New Testament that we, as believers, are now the true sons of Abraham. Israel. This is what the new covenant will look like, God says. Not this old covenant where 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 some of them broke it and turned from me and were adulterous, so I was their husband. In the new covenant, God says, here's an aspect. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So you have members in Israel, right? who are faithful and unfaithful, some whose sins were forgiven, some whose sins were not forgiven. God says, no, there's coming a day where my people are going to be a more pure display of my glory and that all of their sins will be forgiven and they're not going to break covenant with me. They will all be faithful. They will all be believing. And this is the church today. This is the new covenant people of God that Scripture talks about. Ezekiel also looked forward to that day in Ezekiel 36, verse 26. Sounds very similar. Listen, and I will give them a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There is no one in the new covenant that falls away from God. There is no one who rebels and turns from God, I will cause them to walk in my ways. Old covenant, you had faithful and unfaithful. You had a remnant and you had sinful rebellion. New covenant, God's people now, He saves us and sanctifies us in such a way that we will not fall from Him. He causes us to walk in His ways. Do you, Christian, walk in the ways of God? The reason you walk in the ways of God is because God causes you to walk in His ways. There's nothing special about you. I mean, you're special. That sounded mean. You're not that special. It is the Lord's affection on you that makes you special. He has chosen you and chosen me from, from among and, and pulled us out of mire and, and filth. We weren't something precious and beautiful and worthy and valuable until God made us such. So in the new covenant, God causes his people to be faithful. That's a big deal. Another way, though, you may not even need to say this because we really looked at this last week, but another way the old covenant was incomplete was the reality that sins were not forgiven. Remember? 
They were sacrificed. I mean, blood was being shed. God was teaching that blood needs to be shed. There's a penalty and a price for your sin. But Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was delaying God's wrath, but they knew that something was going to have to happen down the road. They knew there was going to have to be one sacrifice that was going to just take care of us because they had to keep doing it every single year. So they knew that it was not complete. They knew that something else was going to have to happen at some point, And it would involve a sacrifice and would involve the shedding of blood. Well, Jesus comes and says, I purchased the new covenant with my people by my blood. And sins are forgiven. All other covenants were fulfilled and the promise of grace is realized in Jesus Christ. Luke twenty two twenty. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus came as the Lamb of God and was our substitute, dying in our place on the cross. And so the cross is where God's justice and mercy came together. On the cross, you and I were shown great mercy. And we were shown great mercy because Jesus was shown justice for the sin of me. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus dies in our place. It's the worst deal in history. He takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. That is the great exchange. He took our sin and he imputes to us his righteousness. In other words, he credits it to our account. Not righteous, but we're righteous in Christ. Not only does he impute his righteousness, but then as we live as Christians, he imparts righteousness. He makes you more righteous. Because what is God after? Glory. What is God's relationship with his people all about? It, we are image bearers of God. To bear the image of God. To display the greatness of God. How do we display the greatness of God? By becoming more and more godly. Who becomes more and more godly? Christians become more and more godly through the imparted righteousness of Jesus Christ through His Holy Spirit. So the new covenant people of God, right? Sins forgiven. Righteousness imputed. Righteousness imparted. He is making this new covenant people of God who is only made up of those who are faithful. And he is making them more and more faithful. Christian, he's making you more and more faithful. Making you more and more like Jesus. So that he will get more glory. This is who we are as the new covenant people of God. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what Jesus has done to us. Jesus has done through us. And this is what we're told. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts. Many of these other letters in your Bible. Still under this heading of the new covenant people of God. Letters that are written by the new covenant people of God to the new covenant people of God for the new covenant people of God. So after Acts, you have the book of Romans, which begins the Pauline epistles or letters, because no one says epistle anymore. <laughs> I'm going to send you an epistle this week. You're like, what? <laughs> I don't like the sound of that. So first you have these 13 letters that Paul writes. Okay, and the first eight, I believe, eight, nine, ten, eleven, the first nine are written to churches. Okay, the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, the church in Galatia, the church in Ephesus, the church in Philippi, the church in Colossae, and the church in Thessalonica. Okay, these are letters that are being written to the churches, and it's giving them doctrine. Okay, and it's giving them instruction of how they are to live as the new covenant people of God. As God has already said, I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in you, I'm going to cause you to walk in my ways, and I'm going to tell you what my ways are, and I'm going to tell you how to live, and I'm going to call you how to live, and that's what we have in the New Testament. See the book of Romans, which tells us that through Jesus, God has kept his promises by providing for us righteousness through Jesus, which is accounted to us by faith. That's what Romans is about. Then you have the letters of First and Second Corinthians, which were written to a compromising church steeped in a worldly culture. Corinthians was messed up. That was a bad church. God loved them, 
God was faithful to him and he got things turned around. But every church, right, you've got the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church is everybody who's here today. Okay, here we are, Veritas Church. But God looks and he knows whose hearts actually belong to him. That's the invisible church. Okay, so in the visible church of Corinth, there was a lot of nasty things going on in the church. And so Paul has to write them two letters correcting them and training them and calling for order and organization and stop getting drunk at communion. Terrible things were happening. And so he writes in that instruction. The book of Galatians, we studied that as a church a couple years ago. There Paul defends the gospel by articulating what it is and what it is not. Right? He's writing to a church that has heard another gospel, which is really no gospel at all. And so he goes through and tells them what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. Then he writes to the church in Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, which is primarily about the church. Primarily about the church. We get a lot of doctrine of what the church is from the book of, of Ephesians. God's new community that he is building by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. He writes to the Philippians, has a lot of good things to say to the Philippians. Pretty good church. They're full of joy. And Philippians is all about joy. That's where Paul says things like, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We know the history of Paul. We know his life. He had much reason for sorrow, and yet he was filled with joy and believed he could do all things through Christ who who gave him strength. And and these wonderful, wonderful verses that are the root should be the root of much joy in the Christian life. Colossians, we read of the supremacy uh, of Christ primarily in the book of Colossians. First and second Thessalonians, an interesting couple letters. Uh, a number of people, apparently a number of people in Thessalonica um, heard the teaching on the second coming and assumed it was going to be like tomorrow. And so you have people in Thessalonica who had just quit their jobs and like bought property in Oregon and got off the grid and are sitting back in their chairs looking up at the sky, listening for the trumpet. And so Paul writes to them and says, you need to get a job. It's going to be a while and keep going on with life and doing all things for the for the glory of God. Then Paul writes these personal letters. We just got through in a sermon series looking at a couple of them in first and second Timothy. But Paul writes to Timothy, who was a close friend and pastor of the church in Ephesus. He writes to Titus, another pastor whom he had left to pastor a church on the small island of Crete. And then he writes to Philemon, which is a very short book, very interesting book, where Paul writes to a, a friend and slave owner named Philemon. And he writes on behalf of one of his slaves who has become a close friend of Paul. And so he writes to him to encourage him to release his friend from enslavement. So those are the Pauline letters. Then you have uh, the the general uh, letters. And and again, they're organized basically from longest to shortest. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and and Jude. Hebrews is where we... I drew on Hebrews a lot from these sermon series, right? Because in Hebrews, we, we gain our understanding of how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. And how the New Testament is the, uh, the fulfillment and how, how the, the, the God's covenant with his people is fully realized through Christ and through the new covenant people of God. And how Jesus is the fulfillment. Right? He's the greater priest. He's the new temple. He's the new sacrifice. He is all these things. And you have the book of James, which is perhaps the most practical letter in the entire Bible. Extremely, extremely practical. First and second, Peter, written probably when Christians were just beginning to undergo severe persecution and suffering. And Peter writes and says, this is the new normal. This is, this is what the life of a Christian is going to be like. Of course, he encourages them with the gospel. First, second, and third John, we've studied first John together, written to encourage Christians and love and faithfulness. And then a little letter, Jude, short warning against false and immoral teachers. And so these letters then, these conclude the New Testament's instructions on what it means to live as the new covenant people of God. So, so far that's two. That's your New Testament. Jesus and the new covenant people of God. But we've got one more book left. Crazy book. Revelation. Some of you have nightmares from reading Revelation. It's like, it's like, it's like our little secret Harry Potter book <laughs> stuffed in the back of our Bible. I'm glad you laughed. I know some Harry, I'm not supposed to say Harry Potter in church, but 
I mean, there are, Revelation is wild, right? I mean, there is, there are dragons. Okay, there is judgment. Uh, there is uh, white horses coming down from the sky. There is swords coming out of people's mouths. I mean, there are creatures with seven eyes. and I mean, it is totally wild. But here's what we do have in Revelation. Number three, a future hope. Future hope. The New Testament is about Jesus. It is about the new covenant people of God and it's about future hope. Revelation is the, is the one prophecy that, that, that we still have that is looking forward, that was written in the New Testament that is telling us of things yet to come. It's your Old Testament, right? It says Jesus is coming. The rescuer is coming. What does Revelation say? The rescuer is coming. He's going to come back. And here's when he's going to come back. Here's how he's going to come back. And here's how God is going to wrap things up. Here is how God is going to finish this great story. Here's how God is going to bring the restoration of all things. Right? Because you have creation. You have the fall. You have redemption in Christ. But we all know, don't we? We all know things aren't right yet. We're still groaning. I mean, we all know things aren't right yet. That's why there's things that we're still afraid of. That's why we uh, lock our doors at night. That's why we hear horrible and terrible things on the, on the news. That's why we're distrusting in relationships. That's why we've suffered and, and have so much pain and have shed so many tears. Because things we know, things are not right yet. We have joy alongside the sorrow, but there's still a lot of sorrow. Well, Revelation speaks of a day where there will be no more tears. It speaks of a day when all things will be made right. Justice done. Mercy, grace for God's people. Established in his kingdom forever. The sun disappears. Just God is there and he is our light. So the Christian has many things to look forward to and we have things to look forward to because of the book of revelation some of you have not been taught revelation that way just freaks you out you saw a kirk cameron movie and you're just dreading you know the day when you know pilots start disappearing from airplanes (laughs) some of you know what that means and you're just waiting for you know, the trumpet to blow and all hell to break loose around us. The truth is, is that the revelation ultimately is about a future hope, which is why we are a people who want Jesus to come back quickly. We're not a people who say, take your time. We want him to come back yesterday. We want him to come quickly. Let me just read you this scripture. The only scripture I'll read from Revelation, chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. There's so much I could say about Revelation, I know. So I know I'm leaving a lot out of Revelation. And, and some of you want me to give a view or an eschatological position or quote some other verses or tell you what the whore of Babylon is. And we're not doing that this morning. So, But I'll read Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And this is the... If you don't know, Revelation, John is, is taken up into heaven and um, he's given this great vision and he sees amazing, amazing things. And in one part here in Revelation 5, he is handed a scroll. And it's a scroll that we think looks like what a Roman will and testament would have looked like at the time. And so you've got some um, an outline on one side, you've got details on the inside, and then it's rolled up and has seven seals on it, which is strange and a big deal. And it means that there's only a certain person, the idea there, that can actually open this, who's worthy to open this and who's, who's able to, to open it. And John knows that inside this scroll that it is the, the, the secret plan of God for the future, basically the unfolding of future history. Uh, But there's this thing that happens with John where where he feels in in, in this vision, when he's given the scroll before him, that there's no one around who is worthy to open it. And there's no one around who is worthy to to carry out this plan. Now, John knew Jesus, and so we don't know if he just somehow was, that was uh, the, you know, temporarily so that he could feel the weight of this, if that was hidden from him or, or what. There's, there's really no explanation. But he's given this scroll, and he looks around and says, there's no one 
who can reveal these plans of God and there's no one who can carry out these plans of God and like a person in the Old Testament that feels helpless and hopeless, he starts weeping. He just starts crying and weeping because it's like you're right on the edge there and and then things are about to go forward and God's plan is about to be revealed and His glory is going to come and the no tears and all that's about to happen, but no one can, there's no one worthy to open the scroll. And so he breaks down, he falls down and he just starts crying. He's so upset. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Isn't that great? An elder comes up and says, what are you crying about? Get up. You're embarrassing me. (laughs) No, he gives him truth. What does he say? He says, weep no more. Behold. And I believe what the elder does here. I mean, he he points to one. And who is the one? Jesus. He says, weep no more. Behold. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You read on and Jesus opens the scroll and everybody starts singing. It's great. Literally, his mourning was turned into dancing. He was weeping because no one was worthy to carry out God's plan. And then Jesus comes and opens the scroll and everyone starts breaking out in song. And then we have recorded what song they sang. They sang, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now, if you didn't catch it, what they sing is the gospel. They sing the gospel. Let me read that song again. Worthy are you, Jesus. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So we're told in Revelation that the conquering lion and the slain lamb are the same person. Which sounds like an oxymoron, right? When you think of a slain lamb, that conjures up thoughts of weakness and and defeat. When you think of a conquering lion, that should conjure up thoughts of strength and victory. But Jesus is the slain lamb. And Jesus is the conquering lion. Because he was the conquering lion through his being slain as the lamb of God. Jesus gave himself. Jesus offered himself. Satan didn't win on the cross. Jesus gave himself on behalf of sinners. And so, God's greatest moment of victory. Get your mind around that. Jesus' greatest moment of victory was when he died on the cross. So the moment that it appeared that he was at his weakest, he was his strongest. At the moment when it looked like he had finally been defeated, he had actually won the victory. And when he said, it is finished, he was saying, I won. He wasn't saying, you won. He was saying, I won. Game over. Done. The work I came to do, this was it. Jesus came to die. And so in the book of Revelation, it tells us that this rescuer is not done. Regardless of your view on end times, we believe that the rescuer is not done. Christians, there is much more coming. It's going to get 
better. Jesus is reigning. Jesus is returning. And Jesus will reign forever. And so Revelation is this book that is giving us future hope. So New Testament. New Testament is about Jesus. New Testament is about the new covenant people of God. New Testament is about future hope. Hope and pray that that coupled with last week, this gets us ready to spring now and go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning, and start our study of God's first book, the book of beginnings, Genesis. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for giving us time together today to open up your word together. It is a good sound to hear pages turning. It is a good thing to see eyes on this book. And it's a good thing to know that your Holy Spirit is working within us to illuminate your word, to awaken us to your word, to pierce us with your word. And so we hope even today that you have done this. And we look forward to, we look forward to seeing how you will change us, your people, God. We hold on to the promise that you are conforming us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ, from one degree to another, that you are making us more like him, more like our great Savior. Our hope is that you would do this work, God. That you would make us more holy people. You make us a more godly people. If there are some here today, God, who bear the name of Christ, but are not concerned with holiness. I pray that you would you would strike them now, God. That they would feel the weight of that kind of life. That they would desire to do whatever you would have them do. That they wouldn't play around with your word. That they wouldn't make your word say things that it does not say. That they would read your word. That they would take counsel. And they would obey you and honor you and do what will bring you glory as they understand that that is why we are here. That you may be glorified through us. So God, send us on your mission to be this city on a hill, to display your glory to the world around us, to make disciples of all these nations for our good and for your glory. We pray this in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.